to get them back on the reservation. You're way off the reservation, Jack. Damn it, David. I'm trying to save the reservation. On the reservation? I would go so far off the reservation without her husband knowing about it. I'm just asking you to help me keep her on the reservation. We need to keep her on the reservation. You've gone completely off the reservation here. We need to keep her on the reservation. All right, welcome back. We have been on sabbatical, and we are back. Um, this is Eric, and as always, I'm joined by my lovely wife, Garrison. Hello. And uh, we uh, first want to apologize to our, uh, our, you know, our our thousands and thousands <laughs> of fans worldwide that um, we've been the so negligent. The screaming yeah, fans. Exactly. Um, <laughs> one Direction that got shit on us. Um, <laughs> That we've been so lame, you know, we really feel bad that we dropped the ball with you guys. We, you know, a lot of you uh, put your time and energy and even your money into making this podcast a reality. And so we are, are, we're back. We've just been super, super busy. Work really exploded for me, and Garrison's work has just really blown up as well. And we've been, you know, bad that, podsters. We are bad, bad, we're bad podsters. And we've been to Europe, you know, so we've got some seriously like bad what podsters, we call but great travelers. Well, has, hashtag white people problems, like serious <laughs> exactly. white people problems that uh. we've got. But um, uh, we are back. We're gonna really, really do better about doing regular shows at least once a month, and um. So we'll be back at you, but we are going to have a slight, slight, I guess a, a format change in that it's not going to be quite so oriented around trying to be funny. We're definitely going to sprinkle some humor in, but it's definitely going to take a little bit of a change. Um, part of the reason that it's been such an odd and hectic year is because it's been an unusual growth period for me, especially. Um, I've had some very, very interesting epiphanies and experiences and just mental it's been a, it's been a very uh psychologically intense year i guess you could say and uh, i'm going to share some of that with you on today's show um and but 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 before we get too far into that we are going to do um a, we, we are going to keep some of the things that we've had before like some of our favorite things like for instance, today I want to take an opportunity to plug a friend of mine's podcast that they're on their they just launched their third episode. <clears throat> they're an atheist and anti-theist based podcast out of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, a guy I went to college with named Chris. He is um, on Twitter at Seethen Heathen, and it's exactly the <laughs> way it sounds. Awesome. And the name of their podcast is Unbuckling the Bible Belt, and they're. And they're basically sort of a voice of atheism from the perspective of the South. And they really are, and I think that's a great thing. And there's actually quite a network of podcasts and Facebook pages and Twitter handles and stuff that are, are building a network of people in the Bible Belt specifically that are sort of getting the voice out there to, to, to new thinkers and to, you know, encourage people to come out and say, hey, you know, I've been being told something my whole life i'm not sure i agree with it and they're finally finding a you know a sort of comfort zone they can go into to sort of i guess come out as an atheist yeah, dissenting point of view exactly from from the status quo especially in the bible belt so i would uh, you should definitely check that out just especially if you're not from the south it would be very interesting to listen to just because it's the perspective of southerners and chris and i went to college at auburn um, university at montgomery together for about a year and we got to be very good friends and at the time i met him i was still 
I guess you would have called me a Christian even though I was a completely non-practicing, but I still believed that the Bible was a legitimate document uh, as far as divinely inspired, etc. Really? Divinely inspired, not just uh, good words to live by? I don't even think I knew that. No, back then I did. Yeah, I was raised Christian. No, I know know that, but I just didn't believe you ever had even a moment of literal Bible belief. Oh, yeah. That's one of the things, perfect segue, because that's what I wanted to start, really, was that, you know, Garrison and I both were raised Christian. Mm -hmm. and Episcopalian for me. Yeah, and she was, and Episcopalian was what she calls Catholic light. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's... sort of Catholicism without the Pope, but... And less molesting. (laughs) (laughs) Lots less molesting, but a lot better wine. It always had to be vintage, (laughs) and our minister went on buying trips to France. And then, you you know, it it was who else who wore Chanel, and uh, and, uh, that was pretty much my experience with uh, Christianity was that. Mine was very different. Um, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. Um, We did not... My dad had been raised Seventh-day Adventist. My mom had been raised Baptist, but she converted when she married my dad, and she was pregnant with me. And they decided to become very actively practicing Seventh-day Adventist, and that's the way I was raised 100% of my childhood all the way up until I left after I graduated from high school was they were very actively practicing Seventh-day Adventist. Um, up until I was halfway through my eighth grade year, I went to Seventh-day Adventist schools. We didn't really have a television in our house until I was about 13. And we only had Seventh-day Adventist friends. And I was raised in a very, very cast-iron bubble of Christian dogmatism until I was about 14. And then I was transferred to public school halfway through my eighth grade year. And I had started at around 12, and I think this is one of the things that me and Garrison run parallels with. At around 12 or 13, we both got to a point in life where we started asking questions that yeah. didn't receive a very receptive audience at church. You start asking these sort of why and how questions, and those aren't... Those you get don't thrown <laughs> out of Sunday school is what <laughs> exactly. you get for asking exactly. why Jesus is pictured as blonde and blue-eyed when he was a Jew from an area where there are not that many blonde and blue-eyed people. So, yeah, I got thrown out of uh, uh, Sunday school several times for asking yeah, questions. Well, and hard questions, but, but true questions. I mean, things kids want to know. Well, and that, too, and when you, when it, you know, by the time you're 12, you're certainly old enough that when adults try to give you those sort of vague just because answers yeah you've definitely got a bullshit detector at that point yeah. and mine was starting to make distinct clicking sounds because yeah. it was detecting bullshit and so from that point forward all the way up into my early 20s i would describe my relationship with um I guess you'd say my spiritual side as being sort of tortured, a sort of back and forth. I wasn't really sure. There was a lot of that time I spent believing that there was a literal heaven and a literal hell and that mm. I was definitely going to the literal hell. It's and so I interesting. Just I never that. believed any of that. I, I, once I decided that Episcopalianism was not my thing, you know, I did uh, Episcopal Young Churchman for a couple of years and all they wanted to do was drink and make out and that wasn't satisfying any kind of spiritual need for me. So I just became a seeker. I knew that I knew that that wasn't for me. I I I went to several other Christian-based churches, and they weren't for me. And I knew pretty early on that that Christianity, as presented, was not the paradigm uh, with which my spiritual leanings was going to find a home. So, but but because you were in public school and you had a lot of friends that were across the sort of broader spectrum, you were involved in theater, you were involved in dance, and even though that was all in Richmond, Virginia, a very conservative sort of community, 
your sort of palette was a little broader than mine. So now I'm not saying it was significantly yeah, no, so, all but very, it was very, very Christian based. But um, I just didn't talk about it, and and my parents gave me the option to stop going to church. I was either going to get confirmed how, how in the church. Was, how old was that? I'm trying to think, thirteen, fourteen, That's, somewhere yeah. around there, and then I chose not to. So about that time, they figured that I was the the youngest. They figured they they had done their uh, due diligence as parents to give us a religious framework because neither one of them were really religious, but I would say they would both identify as Christian by default, probably yeah. more than so we went we went for you know the high holy days, basically Christmas, Easter, but they stopped going to church every Sunday, and therefore I was able to stop that's basically what happened with my family too the Although now, what's weird about my family is that my parents quit going to church about the time my brother, he wasn't even out of high school yet, my baby brother, mm-hmm. and they quit going to church and they resumed drinking, which was a very much a violation of what they considered to be the, you know, the Christian lifestyle. And yeah, well, um, that's the Episcopalian lifestyle. <laughs> drinking is the Episcopalian <laughs> lifestyle, a whiskey pail. Well, I never saw my parents touch a drink <laughs> until after I left home. <laughs> like it, that was a strictly forb- forbidden in our yeah, home. Like so it was weird. not cool. And, um, but at about 14, when I got transferred to that public school, I started like, cause you know, I didn't really realize what it was I was missing out on on Saturdays because we kept the Jewish Sabbath. So from sundown Friday yeah, to sundown Saturday, that. we didn't do jack squat outside of very religious practices. And and this, since I didn't go to public school and we didn't have any friends outside the church, I was sort of vaguely aware that there was sort of shit going on in the world on Saturdays. Because, you know, when we would drive to and from church, I would see kids at ballparks and stuff. But I really had no idea what the world did on Saturday and on Saturday nights and on Friday nights. I had no idea. And then all of a sudden, at 14, I'm transferred to a public school, and just, it was like the blinders just got ripped off. And I started, like, all of a sudden, there was this just sort of world feast at my... And this is in Crossville, Tennessee, so we're not exactly talking about a real world feast, but all of a sudden, there was just all these things I felt like I'd been deprived of. So I sort of went... I started, you know, really exploring outside that, and at about that time, my dad gave me this sort of, like, son, we're not going to, you know, force you to go to church with us, though we'd appreciate it if you did, and we'd like for you to, but we're not going to say you have to go to church with us, and probably from that point until I left home, the only times I went to church was when I was grounded, because if you were grounded, you had to go to church. You weren't allowed to stay at home if you were grounded, but if you... If you had other activities you wanted to do on Saturday besides church, once he gave you that speech, you were allowed to go and do them. We always went to midnight mass at Christmas, and most of the time went to Easter. So and and I had a couple of Jewish friends, so I was able to go to Shabbat uh, a couple of times. So I, I actually had you know sort of that experience. But really, base, I was very basically raised Christian with a little bit of you know. But, but that's it. The, those churches that you went to were very would have been considered like liberal to the extreme by oh, the standards of what they I would have went, been a, anathema to oh, your yeah. parents I, I mean, mean the to, the church to, that we went to when I was in high school was one of those I remember there there was a church business meeting and since I was a baptized member of the church I was allowed to attend the business meetings mm-hmm. and I you know I wasn't really allowed to contribute a whole lot cuz I was still a kid but I remember there being an argument when we bought pews 
Mm-hmm. Because we needed new pews for the church. There was an argument about whether or not there should be padding on the pews because the, some of the older people felt like too much comfort was going to take a, was going to distract people from the point of being there, which was worshipful. Like they were like, wow, yeah, that's the, that's the kind the of opposite Puritan in our sort of. church. <laughs> while while I was, I can't remember how old I was, probably about eight or nine. They redid the kneelers and made them more padded so it wouldn't hurt people's knees so much. We had we had a loop carpet that was very short on the floor and <laughs> nobody gave a shit what your knees felt like you were getting on the floor to on pray the to floor Jesus. you oh, didn't have kneelers no oh absolutely i wouldn't have made not. it <laughs> And uh anyway so that's the sort of that's the thumbnail sketch of the way we were both raised now you know obviously we didn't know each other garrison when she by the time she went to college i'm sure her church going days were long past her at that point because she was a theater yeah, i was person. still i was still searching i mean i i, I you've always teacher. had a spiritual aspect absolutely and yeah. and in college i i went to you know i went to the catholic group i mean i went to all of them and i still didn't find anything that even remotely fit what I felt like uh, my spiritual paradigm. I didn't didn't find a spiritual home until probably I was in my early 80s and I met my first new age person. Not your early 80s. Yeah, in the early early 80s. Um, Yeah, wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're not even there yet. Um, (laughs) And for me, uh, the only thing I'm going to say about, you know, like up until my mid-20s is when I enlisted, and I don't know that my family even knows this, I think I told my mom because she made a to-do about on public media recently about them taking the uh, swearing under the oath under uh, God as part of the oath of re-enlistment for the Air Force. A big stink got made about that. When I originally enlisted, in the Marine Corps uh, at 17 years old, they told us in the swearing-in ceremony that if we did not want to say the God part, we didn't have to. We just sat there with our mouths closed while everybody else said that, but we had to repeat every other word. And so I refrained from saying it then, and for four years while I was on active duty, it said atheist on my dog tags. And actually at the time, I didn't realize that putting atheist on my dog tags might have been a source of some of the angst I dealt with in boot camp for some of my drill instructors and stuff. Because if you think about, like, at 17, I would have just thought, it's the Marine Corps. They don't give a shit what religion you are. Mm -mm. But Well, the Marine Corps actually didn't. But the Marines that were in the Marine Corps, for fucking sure they did, you know. Sure. And, you know, and most people are, most Americans are self-professed Christians at least and Definitely. and many of those people even the non-practicing ones sort of see atheism as the equivalent of an of an amoral just under the influence of Satan himself because if you believe in God and you believe in the devil then everything that's not of God is obviously of the devil so atheism ipso facto is obviously of the devil mm-hmm. but anyway that I had atheists on my dog tags for four years while I was in the military and honestly don't know if my parents even know that because neither one of them attended my swearing in ceremony um, yeah, to say I was estranged from them at that point. That would have been a huge problem for them. Well, I don't and I never know. was at that in point, anything where I had to claim my religious status in the sense of there was. I don't even know if they print religion on your dog tags anymore. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I, it's been 20 some years since I was even in. So, you know, anyway, I don't want to get too hung up on those kind of details, but that's sort of like. Yeah, and, and And I remember telling people during that time period, like fuck yeah, I'm going to hell, like, and I'd just be drinking and fighting and, like, you know, telling people that I was on the highway to hell, and not really, like, thinking about it too much, but when I would think about it on the rare occasion, I would just be like, well, 
I don't think there's I don't I'm not convinced that there really is, but if there is, fuck it, that's where I'm going. It's so funny. And I think it was because all the time, subconsciously, I was suspecting that that was just all bullshit. And I didn't have the wherewithal or the time or the energy or the desire to really sort through it enough to determine, well, what was it that I actually did believe about the world, you know? I I did not know that about you after all this time together because I can't remember a time where I actually truly believed there was a heaven and hell. I might never have believed that, that well, there was a that, literal heaven and hell. I think that's why you've had a more staid and stable relationship with your spirituality. I had a very tortured like existence with mine for a I'm long sure. time. And it was when I got out of the Marines, I was doing martial arts with this guy while I was going to college with my buddy Chris that I mentioned earlier. I was doing martial arts with this guy. I was a security guard. He was a security guard. And there was no like money. It was just we both had this passion and he had a deep background in it and he introduced me to sort of zen buddhism through the martial arts and that was the first real like i had sort of read you know some some buddhist koans and stuff like that and i had I'd read some of the a little bit of the philosophy and it always made great sense to me i remember like when i would hear like zen koans like what is the sound of one hand clapping immediately there was a part of my mind that was always like that's a really cool thing to think about let me think about that you know and so i was always intrigued by it and then when he introduced it to me and i started really studying it and i started studying like the japanese concept of the warrior as bushido and um, the uh, and the mind no mind state that you try to achieve when you're in this you know ultimate sort of fighting mode that's very zen mm-hmm. you know and so I began to pursue it then and that was really sort of my entree into what I would consider to be my philosophical phase that I really got into that I've always sort of been into ever since then it wasn't long after that that I really just decided you know what I'm just going to set aside these notions of heaven and hell I think they're ridiculous. I think that, for one thing, even as immature and as arrested in my development as I was in a lot of ways, they smacked of just such a primitive, like, carrot and stick mentality of, like, yeah. even at that point in my 20s, as as stupid as I was, even I had the sense to realize, like, really, the creator of the entire universe has these really primitive, like... Yeah tools then this is what he uses to control humanity and yeah. i'm not even great shakes and even that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me so that doesn't that doesn't really hold yeah, god up. was always uh sort of uh put forward as, as so human and i I'm, I'm like if he's so omnipotent and and whatever why does he have all these human frailties and and yeah. fallacies well, and things attached attached to this entity that supposedly greater than us I, I, I that's never, that I was never, what all that was fomenting sort of right below yeah, the surface and yeah, all I, this. Never, I never and, then and I, did, I never felt like a miserable sinner it's like I'm too young to be a miserable sinner I haven't done anything yet that and you know I think that for me we really were beaten over the head with this notion of you're just you're such a worthless sinner and the only redemption you have is through the blood of Jesus Christ we were really like they were a real you would classify it as fire and brimstone sort of like teachings that i was raised with like that's what you were really beating over the head with a lot i got taken to a revival meeting when i was young oh, yeah we went in, to in those North every Carolina, year you know a, a, a church tent meeting you know slapping oh, yeah. on the we forehead. went to camp meeting was our summer vacation yeah most you know, of the summer talking in tongues and stuff uh, terrifying horrifying if if i was ever on the fence about being a christian that would have sent me completely the well, other way now like we i will ne- never ever be a christian because of that i wasn't around speaking in tongues i wasn't an adventist oh my but god i had horrifying. i have seen it but it's terrifying. been since i was in the adventist i've never seen I've the seen snake it. thing but uh, i've seen yeah I've, I've not witnessed it in person but i knew a kid 
not to get too far off track, but I knew a kid who was the son of a snake handling preacher up in the Kentucky, Virginia area, and it was that's a that's a frightening that is level of city. stupid I, right yeah, there. Really, yeah, absolutely. But anyway, um, I did LSD when I was 23, and I have to say that's when the doors of perception were cleansed. To to rip an Aldous Huxley phrase, um, that was when it really was just like you know what nothing I've been taught is fucking real. This whole fucking thing was bullshit. I'm just going to scrap it all, and then I'm going to start from here. And that's, and I didn't do a lot of conscious pursuit of a structured like worldview at that point, but that's when I sort of erased the chalkboard or shook the etch-a-sketch, so to speak, and just went, you know what? Fuck all that. This is not right. And I don't know what is, but I know that ain't, so let's just start with a blank slate. I met my first metaphysical person about that time, and they showed me a film called The Global Brain, and they gave me a tarot card reading, and then they took me to a psychic, and I was like, oh my God, there's a whole world, yeah. and, and, and they, they, they told me about Native American spiritualism, and I was like, okay, there's just a whole level of human experience that I had no idea was out there that I, I've got to look into this. Right, and, and when you're introduced to those things, even when you're being, even when you're introduced to them, sometimes you're like, okay, maybe this isn't 100% yeah, legit, yeah, I don't know but, that I it's, it's in it, but it was different. It's different than what I've been yeah. told. And, and it was valid. And there's some validity yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's sort of the same thing that happened to me. You know, over the years I began to encounter... And then I went through a period in my 20s where I sort of helped some with me and some friends of mine ran like a open mic at a coffee shop. And there was a whole group of us that were like really into reading the philosophers and the psychologists and the beat writers. And, yeah. you know, we were doing that young guy poetry reading, yeah, I did, playing I did the, the bongos and like Book of the Dead and the Egyptian Book yeah, of the Dead. All that shit. And all, you know, all and, the, yeah. And that was great. It was, it was and great. we read the Bhagavad Gita and yeah, all absolutely. that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, and that was where I really feel like when I started getting into the Eastern philosophies, that was where I would have to say that my worldview that I currently have really began to uh, begin to I sort of laid the foundations for it during that time period. And on top of that, I was reading like Malcolm X and Gandhi and like I, yeah, I was, you know, I was I was I had a pretty broad spectrum and I actually read voraciously through my 20s. It's been a bizarre you know, things since then I don't seem to read much anymore. But I used to be a voracious reader. And so and then that sorta of, and then I fell back down the rabbit hole of drugs and alcohol, which I wrestled with through my twenties for did, completely different personal reasons that I'll maybe mention later in this podcast. But the it didn't really begin to come to another uh, the next real big growth phase I hit was when I got sober and I was living at that cabin alone in the mountains for six months. And I only came to town like once a week, so I had six days a week minus the sort of six to eight hours on Fridays when I would come to town and see my shrink, get my food and water, eat a good restaurant meal, and then just head back up the hill. And, you know, during that time period, I read a lot, and I actually began, because I I, I, I sort of entered sobriety with this notion of, okay, whatever's been going on in my life isn't working. I need to reinvent who I am determine what world I want to live in mm -hmm. and then figure out how I'm going to function the way I want to function in that world. So I was sort of in that point forced to structure, okay, what is your worldview? And yeah. it was during that time period that I re 
visited Ken Wilber and yeah. Carl Young yeah. and you know a lot of those uh, you know I went to back to some of the sources some of the stuff didn't make sense one of the most profound things I ever read in my life that really changed my life from the moment I read it was Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning that yeah. was yeah that's an awesome book if you're, if you're ever suffering from an existential angst especially if you feel like you're in an existential vacuum that book will pull you out of <laughs> yeah. it I promise it it's, an, it's an amazing piece of literature anyway so when I got sober, I was at this point where I was like, you know, I had re I had this new view of the world and the universe I lived in. Yeah. And at the time I would still say that I was perceiving the by well by this time what it was I was perceiving is what I believe most people perceived as God or some creative force was the collective human conscious. Mhm. And that it was greater than the individual, but it was still human in its nature. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so and so this perception that it's this it's just divinity or whatever was silly to me because it wasn't divinity; it was just the big collection of humanity. And so it was, it was something I respected, and it was something I'd, I I guess you could say I sort of revered my connection to it in a way because I very much treasured the fact that I was even alive because mm-hmm. I survived yeah, you know yeah, a yeah. sort of gnarly period of my life. So I guess you could say I revered it, but not in like a like a taboo, like there was no way for, I didn't see that blasphemy was ever something I was even going to be capable of doing because for me, the collective was just this very like humorous laughing energy that just sort of surrounded me and filled me with joy. Like that, that was how I experienced it when I experienced it. It wasn't, it wasn't this sort of, it wasn't sacred. It was just something I had a great deal of respect for, I guess you'd say. Interesting because I, I, I started chanting Buddhism, Nishiren Shoshu Buddhism, and that I liked the way that that vibrated and I felt good in my body, but I didn't connect to Buddhism per se. And then I started studying Native American shamanism, and I'd sort of cherry-picked a few things here and there from uh, the other religions, Christianity and everything, but um, I, I, I sort of found a context for my connection to the earth and the sort of non-literal spirituality that sort of allows for the that there is something and that there's a mystery but it's not uh it's not parametered it's not named it's not so dogmatic in its form and structure so i think i'd have to say that if i had any religion i would be more attuned to native american shamanism but even that is i i don't I don't have any sort of formal form. It's sort of a, an amalgamation of of where I've been and what I've seen and the things that I've done. That, but I have a. I think I have a more spiritual based worldview still, even though it's not very specific. Much more than you do. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm more. Your yours is. A, you have a very uh, subjective relationship with your notion of the universe. I yes. have a much more objective relationship with it. I think that's what it boils Yeah, down I, to, I have really. I have a, a scientific view but not Right. I'm not saying it's, it's exclusively it's, subjective. Yeah, yeah. But yours is yours is a little more emphasis on yes, the subjective Absolutely. Mine mine is definitely the, a blend yeah. and I and I do yeah. allow for there to be mystery in Well there. and one of the things that both Garrison and I and this is one of the things we shared from the very beginning of our relationship and it was sort of an epiphany I had at the at when I was up at that cabin was 
this notion of the view of the universe, this thing we all look at and we say, this is the universe I live in. Well, we're all in different physical locations in the universe. So the mere physical universe itself looks different to all of us. Yep. And I think that one of the things religions do is everybody gets together and they sort of stick to very, it's like the, the analogy I came up with was if everyone is born with a very, with, with a telescope that's sort of aimed at the night sky, but it's all aimed at slightly different spots in the night sky. And if you get to get, if, if you're talking to another person and you stick to very vague descriptions of what you're seeing, like for example, you say, I see a vast inky darkness periodically interspersed with points of white light. Everybody who's looking at a telescope of the night too. sky is going to be exactly like, yeah, yeah, that's it. exactly what I'm seeing. But then the more detailed you get and the more you start talking about the specific locations of those points of light and everything else, as you get better at communicating about it and as you become more familiar with what your picture is, the more and more other people are going to be able to say, that's not exactly what I'm seeing. But if you believe what you're looking at is the, and I'm, I'm and that's with a capital T, the divinely inspired perception of all that is, then everybody else's description that doesn't jive with exactly. that is not the truth. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's, a, it's, a, it's a perverted version of what you're looking at. So what you have with denominations is you have collections of people that are sort of using the same vague language to describe this spiritual experience they have. And for most of those people, I think that the depth of that spiritual experience is superficial enough that they, they can be honest about it. But they absolute, though. Right, that's and the that's the, that, but, but as long as they stick to that vague language yeah, then, then they're they all speaking mm-hmm. the exact same words yeah. and it and it all and they all can live under this delusion that they're all looking at the exact same thing when the reality is, is that nobody actually well, is well it keeps it in you know the realm of uh and so I had left the cabin with this, like, and also I need to mention at this point that at the point where I decided to get sober I hadn't spoken to my parents in 3 years and so during this time period of my awakening self as I was getting sober and really reinventing who I was I had gotten back in contact with them and um, as this six month period I was at the cabin wound down and I began to sort of transition back into the world one of the things I wanted to do was to find a community of my like-minded people that I could share my newfound view of the universe with and so I went back to my source. I went back to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I thought, well, it's California. I'll meet some progressive How'd Christians. How'd that work out for you? <laughs> <laughs> and so I jumped back in with both feet. I even got rebaptized, and I didn't know you got rebaptized. Yeah, yeah. And I oh even went word. back into the baptismal tank and got I rebaptized. Did not know that. But the but as the even as I was being baptized and during that time period and stuff, I was already beginning to have conversations that were exceeding a depth anybody else was having any kind of comfort with. And it was shortly after that I was at one of the elders' homes with his family, and I was describing my perception of, you know, the night sky and the telescope analogy. And this guy was like. Well, you have to be careful because you know the devil can interfere with what you're seeing in that telescope, mm-hmm. and that and that and devil. in the moment I saw the look on his face, that was sort of the culmination of this sort of experience I was beginning to have with the church, so to speak. And I realized, why the fuck did I even waste my time with these fucking douchebags? And I just, I basically just quit going to church at that point. Oh, but those people business, and they don't attempt to quote unquote witness to me. And, and but it was also during that time period that I, I bet reconnected. They all still pray for you. Though. Oh, I'm sure they do. 
Um, they was also during that time period that I reconnected with my parents. And this is an important detail that I'll reference later on because I think in their mind was, was due to the fact that I had rediscovered Jesus as a Savior. And that's the way they interpreted that's the way they interpreted my being back at the church. Mm -hmm. There was never a deep discussion about my spirituality during that time period. I think that them just standing on the outside watching and this is just this year I'm looking back and realizing all this, that you know, that that they made a lot of assumptions about where I was at and they weren't unfounded assumptions because it was very much a framework that they had raised me in. You know what I'm saying? So they were they were still using the lens of who they were with mm-hmm. the belief system that they had to perceive the actions I was doing at that time. And, you know, I'm not going to say they were really jumping to any wild conclusions. They were just functioning within the framework of, the, of well, their world Well, you were probably view. also acting out the, the fruits of... Uh, I had God that inner peace, in yes. Yeah, and, and the result of all of the prayer that they had done and other people right. had done for and you. Exactly, and I think that's what that's what was so... Which prayer in and of itself is not a, a negative thing. I mean, a, a, a lot of... There's a lot of room to, you know, there's a whole discussion that could be had about yes. the veracity of, you know, uh, focused, focused intention. Focused intention Yeah, is, absolutely. Yeah. But... Um, the word it, prayer makes But it was not these people sending messages to the creator God of the universe and then that person playing an active role in changing who I was that made me who I was at that time. That was not what was happening. Though that's what they saw. And I think that was very confusing for them, especially mm-hmm. this year. So then I met Garrison about three years into my sobriety. We were very much on track, you know, with our our we've always been very parallel and our sort of Well he was never really jiggy with being naked in the uh <laughs> in the ritual and ceremony. Yeah, she went to some after we shortly after we started dating. She went to some Native American thing, and they all got naked and jumped in a pool. And I was at the time. Oh, I was you make it sound like an orgy. It's not. It was. It was part of the 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 ritual in the Anipi. Making a sweat lodge, and then afterwards, as part of the cleansing, you you jump into a cold body of water. But I was just not. I, at the time, I wasn't very comfortable with that. I, I'm. I think I probably would be okay with it now, but but it's because I've got t- more than ten years under my belt, and I trust her implicitly. It was, but we were just very new, and I just wasn't comfortable with that. Anyway, um, but we've always been very simpatico in our in our worldviews. Let me put it like that. There are some differences, but they're not they're not contradictions. Exactly, and they, uh, they, they're just they different. We just choose to focus on different. Another, yeah, exactly, I exactly. I think they're very. Yin He's and yang. a little harder edge than I am. A little softer in that sense. And so then, you know, in the course of getting to know her, I met a lot of for the first time in my life. I met a lot of gay people, and that's what's going to bring me up to where we're at this year earlier this year garrison officiated at a gay wedding that was some friends of hers that she's known for 16 years something mm-hmm. like that and they've basically they've been together they they had just met each other at about the time they met garrison and so they've been together that long and they're just now legally got married this year in california and it was a big event there were a lot of people that flew in from all over the country to come to this wedding and you know obviously there were a lot of gay people at the wedding and because Garrison was the there's offi- a lot of everybody at the wedding. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, but I'm just saying that. That's what was so that, beautiful about it. But, is that but, it was but the reason I'm pointing it out is because my personal experience of this, yes. it was axiomatic that it was a gay wedding. I'm yes. not just saying that because I'm being, you know, I'm, I feel obligated to point it out. That's actually a critical detail to why I'm sharing this story. 
Gotcha. So yes, there were a lot of people at the wedding, but there were a lot of gay people at the wedding. And because Garrison was the officiant, I was sort of just sitting in the back, not really playing a role. I was sort of hoping that one of the sort of hardline Christian family members that actually did show up was going to step out of line. I was going to get to choke somebody out and drag <laughs> him outside. But Too much love <laughs> in the room for that. <laughs> but um, there was these two guys that were, you know, they were... One of, one of the things I think that people that live in parts of the country, especially that don't have an openly gay population, don't realize is that you all know gay people. You just don't know if you know gay people. And most gay people don't look like the gay pride parade in San Francisco type gay people. That's a very small minority of gay people. Most of the gay men I've met are, if you didn't know they were gay, you would not attach any of the stereotypes to them because they're just people living lives and have careers and they gay have families and, and they women. love people yeah. and that's just how it is. So there was these two guys and they just looked like a... Man, they looked like a... <laughs> I don't know, like a structural engineer and a used car salesman from, like, the Buckeye State. You know what I mean? Like, they just look like these two sort of schlubby guys that just had been together forever. And, like, people do at weddings, there was emotions, and and Garrison did such an awesome job that there was, you know, people's emotions were running very high. There was a lot of happiness and love in the room. And so, that you know, there was a lot of damp eyes and... um. Uh, my repression mechanism was in full force, and my eyes weren't weren't leaking at all. But you know, I was you experiencing. Didn't, you didn't get teary at all. I have refused to. I didn't get teary at our wedding until I mentioned oh, the yes, Marine Corps. Oh yes, you did. <laughs> not about me. Um, <laughs> a bitter party of one. <laughs> yeah. <hello>. Um, <laughs> um, so anyway, there was these two guys, and you know, as the as the wedding got more, in, as the ceremony itself got more intense, and everybody's emotions started running higher, they they started exchanged a few knowing glances and they got weepy and and then there was a point where the the smaller of the two guys just he became like racked with sobs and and I began to realize that there was more meaning in the emotions that these two guys were experiencing and they were in their 60s at this wedding for the simple reason that and I and as I was sitting there watching them you know I began to like you know have this sort of epiphany about the fact that you know these guys were from flower country and they had probably spent, of their 60-something years, since they hit puberty, had spent a vast majority of that time living in shame and secrecy and even fear a yeah, lot we of wrote, We rewrote history that day. That's what I mean. So for them, that day was more than just a couple of friends getting married. It was a civil rights-like Absolutely. victory for those yep. people in that room. And that's what began to actually move me, really, was more than just the emotions of the wedding. Because, you know, Darren and Monty had been together for 16 years, and this was more of a civil rights victory than a celebration of their lives together. They'd been celebrating their lives together for 16 years. So that, to me, wasn't the profound part. The profound part, to me, was was this, the civil rights victory. And this guy was literally racked with sobs. He was all he could do to keep himself quiet, and his partner put his arm around him. And that in that moment, I actually looked over, and there were some family members from, um, I'll, I'll keep it some as anonymous as I can, but there were a couple of family members of one of these gentlemen that were getting married that were very Christian and were having a kind of difficult time being in the room when something that they believed was a biblical abomination was taking place in front of their eyes, but they were trying to be there for the, for their loved one, yada, yada. And I'm looking at them, and I'm looking at these two guys, and I had one of those moments where I saw all of the fear and shame and, and self-loathing and, and all of that. As it was falling off of this guy, I saw it was the, the, the underlying dynamic behind what had caused all of that was this 
Western version of Christian morality that's become the underpinning of our society. Yeah. And in that moment, I had this, like, sort of, as, as the realization of that's what this is hit me. I remembered a quote from the movie Waking Life where a guy just says the words, as the pattern becomes more intricate and subtle, being swept along is no longer enough. And I realized I cannot, and I'd been, uh, up until that point I, on social media and stuff, I'd been really sort of editing myself about, I, I had made statements supporting my atheist views, but I hadn't been actually on the attack against Christianity, as I would say, attacking it. Because until that point, I just, I had that sort of mindset that I think most people do in that, well, it's different, but it's okay. It's okay that it's different. We can all just coexist. But the reality is is that we can't coexist because the Christians, especially in this country right now, are actively trying to pass laws. They're trying to influence the public school system with their nonsensical young earth creationism. They're trying to restrict women's access to birth control and the choices about their own bodies. And they're trying to do this with legislation in the public sector. They're using money that's collected in churches to lobby for these things. Yep. It's it's just this it's this rancid network of Bronze Age pathology that is insidiously crept into our culture to the point that it has a tremendous amount of power, it has a tremendous amount of influence, and for those of us that are aware of that and see that it's dangerous and see that it's pathological and see that it's an expression of a of a dead Well, it's an extremism that is... Well, and it's, a, it's an ineffectual philosophy. If, mm-hmm. you, if you look at the world as it's been controlled by Christianity, it's always been a horrid, terrible place. Christians had their shot. It was called the Dark Ages, and it was the Dark Ages because they were in fucking control, and now they're not, and this country was built so that that we could have a separation of church and state and that people could feel free to exercise their religion in a way that was not exactly. affecting and other we, people. We have lost sight and of we that, have and, very and on much that point, I truly... I truly believe the same thing you do. And I'm so just not as one of specifically th- hateful towards Christians. Well, and and as that it was during that 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 wedding that weekend, and the and what I carried away from that that weekend was, it's time to turn the tide. The tide has got to turn. The scales have got to tip in the other way. What needs to happen now is the way that it's viewed now is whenever anybody brings up creationism in the public sector, like Ken Ham and 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 Bill Ken Nye, Ham. I actually think uh. that. In a way, I sort of think I admire people like Bill Nye that are still willing to get out there and mix it up with these morons because I think that in some way that does do some good. But one of the things that it does is it lends – by Bill Nye even stepping onto the stage with Ken Ham, he lent that man more credibility just in that action than that man deserves at all. He is a complete con man, and a it, it's just farcical nonsense. And, and it's, to even say it's pseudoscience is to give it more credibility than it deserves. It's just it's just complete bunk. It's complete myth, and and to to acknowledge it as as in as an equal or acceptable modality, especially for governing, is not only disingenuous, but it's dangerous. Now, I would agree in the public sector when it comes to uh, laws and other things that directly affect the populace. 
and not all that populace holds that belief. Yes, I do agree that it's harmful. But we've had discussions about the the validity, the reality of things like uh, the virtual world. And if uh, people are actually making real money in the virtual world, isn't that real? Well, people's belief system uh, is valid for them. But 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 I do agree that to, once to reconstruct a firewall between their belief system no, I agree. and where it bleeds into the we public need sector. To do that that I is agree. what that is my that is my sole interest. I honestly don't care what people believe. If you want to, it, it gets a little sketchy when you start talking about children. And since I don't have children, I've just sort of chosen to not become involved in that. But. We're going to get into future podcasts. We're going to get into specifically the dangers of why I think Christianity is actually dangerous and, and, and exactly start breaking down some details. But that's not what we're doing here. We're laying the background, and and I'm, I'm explaining where I'm coming from in this. So at that point, at that wedding, that weekend, what I carried away from that weekend was was I have to take a more proactive role in in turning this tide. And what one of the conclusions I came to is is that you know in social media and stuff you see people all the time like they'll they'll post some nonsense about young Earth creationism and people will be like, well, you mean you don't believe in science? And they're like, no, I believe in God. And then everybody's like, okay, well, agree to disagree. But the purpose for their original post was that. They're bragging about the fact that that some school district in in Texas that has a monstrous amount of influence over the way textbooks nationwide get printed have just recently opted to include Moses as one of the influences for the founding fathers. And Mm. that's so fucking retarded because of the simple fact that Moses was a, a, a person of dubious actual historical origin anyway, but even if he existed... Israel was a was has a history of being a, you know of kings. They don't even have like a democracy. If you want to talk about who influenced this country, you'd have to go back into Socrates and you know the early Greek and the and the and yeah. The our Greek, founding fathers were, were incredible philosophers. They yeah. might they might have and had their own religion. So to say Moses yeah. was a bigger influence. If you're going to talk about like some bizarre sort of abstraction to who might have influenced this country, Socrates would make the list long before Moses would. Anyway. That's what I'm talking about. And so they're like, and then they, they, they take this track like, well, what do you mean we can't put that in the textbook? We have religious freedom. And it's like, yeah, but that's the, not religious yeah. freedom. You're forcing your religion now on everybody else. And that's where we can all play a role. And that's where especially I can play a role because I don't, you know, my social media is not for my work network. So my, you know, income isn't contingent on the way people on social media view me. It doesn't matter. And so what's fuck the em. Joel Austin quote that just, oh, <laughs> that just we basically at like don't let facts interfere with your faith is what it was. And it's like and that's the kind of stuff that's like. You know, that's promoting a social cognitive dissonance, and that's just a bad thing. But I don't want to get into the specifics of what's dangerous about it. What I'm talking about today is, like, why I'm doing what I'm doing. So one of the things that I've noticed as I've and – and so back then in April of this year, I started really ramping up not only my professions of my own atheist viewpoints, but I began to – and I'll 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 acknowledge that it was very vicious. It was a very yeah. intentionally vicious attack on Christianity. I wanted it. I wanted to create a hostile environment 
for people to express those what I perceive as nonsensical viewpoints. If they want to talk about it in the, I'm not I'm not coming into their home and trying to scream them down. I'm not doing that. I'll never do that. But what I am doing is the moment they profess these viewpoints out into the public at all, on social media or whatever, I can scream them down there, and I will, and I'm not going to stop. I'm going to continue to ridicule and attack what I consider to be, especially where I consider it to be dangerous to now the social I, and milieu. And I am supportive of that, just not the, the vicious and I'm still personal finding attack. And I'm still finding my legs with how to, how to focus that, on that the vitriol. Belief, on the teachings, on the uh, philosophy, all of that. The fact that, you know, they're teaching 6,000 years as the Earth's uh, age when there's so much empirical evidence that that, that is just complete bunk. But yes, it's, yes it's, be vicious and attack that. Okay, but it's, it's a sort of hard to sort of attack young Earth, young Earth creationism without talking about what a fucking idiot Ken Ham is. And that's where it starts to get personal again. Because Ken Ham is a fucking idiot and he's a dangerous fucking idiot because he's, he's preying on weak minds and he's propagating a mindset that actually makes scientific advancement difficult in, in our society because he, he has a great deal of influence over a lot of weak-minded, ignorant, uneducated people. And so, you know, it's it, it, I'm still finding my legs with how to focus my vitriol. I'm trying to not take it out on the on the mob individuals themselves and learn how to focus on the mob at large and on the ideas at large and that kind of thing. But I'm still difficult having a difficult time doing that because i got a short temper and I'm very passionate and I, I sort of just don't give a shit. <laughs> and um, that has led us to what I was kind of wanting to get to today in that I believe we should all be, that those of us that have this awareness of the, the, the way the world actually works, which we don't claim to have all the answers, but what we are claiming is that we're open to having the answers. That That's the difference. And open I to, to finding the answers. Open to finding the answers and, yeah. and, and helping discover the universe that we live in instead of pretending like it's just this thing of God waved a magic wand and made and that we don't need to learn anything because asking too many questions is what God built hell for. That's that's the the reality. But if you know, if for specifically for as 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 vocal as I am against Christianity, there are consequences for these things. And I experience, I'm, I'm in the process of experiencing, you know, uh, a very pretty serious consequence, I would say, right now in that, you know, a few weeks ago, I got a letter from my father where he, and, and I have to say up front, this was the first communication that there was any actual problem with what I was doing on Facebook specifically that my family had with with me they none of them approached me directly and said hey what the hell are you doing that's kind of offensive or you know anything nobody said anything and then i get this letter out of the blue one day that was a that was an ultimatum and it stated that that i should not only cease and desist all my vitriolic harangues on christianity on facebook but i that i was too publicly and privately apologized to specific people, and the, there were like four num numbered bulleted items that I was to comply with, or he never wanted to hear from me again. And that was a handwritten four-page letter that was very, it was very personal. It was very, uh, uh, it, it was, 
he didn't leave any loopholes, let's put it like that. He painted us both right into a corner, and so that was four handwritten pages. I sent him back five single-space type pages in 11-point font explaining to him why I was not going to comply, why I was doing what I was doing, and how uh, uh, you know a productive dialogue might look in the future, and then got into some other personal issues I had with the way he had parented over the years. Now, parented in the name of religion. Yes, very much so. He yeah. he was he was raised Adventist, and he was raised in a very certain, specific, a lot of corporal punishment sort of way. Spare the rod and spoil the child, and all that. And he. See, this is a problem I have with religion. This is one of my main problems with. Well, him, it's the you know, license the, to behave in whatever way. You know. Well, yeah, the God of the Old Testament is not a warm and fuzzy motherfucker. Like, if you study the Old Testament, holy balls! I saw th- something on Facebook today that was like. Never mind whether or not the Old Testament, never mind whether or not the Bible is true, why would you even want it to be true? And if you read it, it's like, there is not a whole lot of light and love in the Old Testament especially, and outside of the actual teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, there's not a lot of light and love there. There's a whole lot of, fucking comply, respect my authority, you know, there's a whole lot of that, but not a whole lot of actual light and love. And well, I mean, we were given dominion over the earth and all those <laughs> things that are on it. And especially the other, uh, you know, that's just white people he was talking to there. <laughs> well, of obviously, course. Obviously. That's just a given. Um, and so, you know, well, the reason crock. and the reason for all this is Total because there, as I've had these sort of like this, this year has been a real eye opener. As I've had these epiphanies and as the scales have sort of fallen off, man, there's not a single like major social woe facing the world today that I can't draw a significant distinct thread from that back to the underlying cognitive dissonance of religion at large. And specifically the the three bigs, yeah, Christianity, Judaism, the fanaticism and, and, inherent and in Islam those three, yeah. is well because you know ninety percent of the world's population falls into one of those three camps. Mm-hmm. So that that but covers not a, not all of them are fanatical about no, but the but the but the fundamental and we'll get into that in future podcasts. We're gonna we are gonna talk about what is fundamentally flawed about religious philosophy as a whole, and specifically. We'll get into about Christianity. We'll talk about details. And each podcast will sort of take a different detail and break it down so we don't get too far off track. And it doesn't become so all-consuming. This particular podcast is a little different. We're coming up on an hour already. And it's going to be a little different than what we got going forward because I wanted to lay the groundwork for where we're going to be coming from in the future. For those of you that are going to stay on board with us. Um, <laughs> if we haven't already completely <laughs> totally turned you off. Um, yeah, so... You know, we're 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 looking to sort of plug into this network that my friends involved with already and begin networking real time solutions to the problems. Like how can we consolidate resources to fight this battle in in, in real time ways, like, you know, in the legal battles and in social awareness and in, and in different things like that. And we're going to be putting a lot of ideas out and we would love feedback. You know, one of the things that I really feel and the reason I I mean I, I rant a lot and and mostly it's very tongue in cheek ranting just just to get laughs on social media and stuff. But honestly, if you look at what I actually complain about, I don't really complain about very much. I mean, complaining is not really something I'm I'm, I'm it's not really part of who I am. Uh but when I complain, one of the things I like to do is I like to have a solution 
I don't like to just complain for the sake of complaining. And I think one of the problems that we have with social media is that it's giving people a platform where the act of typing their complaints out for the public to read makes them feel like they're actually doing something. And the reality is you're not doing shit. Well, armchair activism has always given us the illusion. Well, and social media has taken armchair activism. The rationalization for armchair activism with social media is just that much greater. And I don't want to fall into this rut of feeling like just because I'm putting it out there on Facebook or Twitter or whatever that I'm doing, that's enough, that I'm good, I'm raising people's awareness, I'm I'm educating the people. Because the truth of the matter is, is that on all of those things, you're only screaming into an echo chamber exactly. of your of your peers for the most part. You're not really reaching. Most of the time, if you're saying something that's that diametrically opposite to what people believe, they block you, unfriend you, you know, or whatever, and, and, you know, and you're, you're not reaching them anyway, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I can't, I'm sort of surprised that my dad and mom didn't block me a long time ago. My dad's not even on Facebook. My mom is, and he just gathers what she tells him about Facebook, so I'm, uh, you know, we'll, I, I'll sort of keep you all apprised for anybody that's interested as that situation evolves. But it's been a couple of weeks now, and I haven't heard back from you, so it's don't so really expect it. It's so interesting that instead of just blocking you, they've chosen to completely disown, disown yeah. you. And uh, you know, and that's part of the problem I have with uh, extreme religion. Is yeah. that, that it doesn't. It's, there's it's no not, compromise there. No, there's, it's there's not no. A, it's not a. It's a very one of the problems that we'll get into is that one of the things all religions do is they promote a very static black and white view of the world and exactly. it's a and that's a dangerous like way to go through life you there is with no, us or well, because us. life isn't black and white and it at isn't. some point you're going to wind up shoving the wrong shade of gray into the black category or the wrong shade of gray into the white category and then you have to live with the resulting pathologies from that when the just acknowledge that life is just a this spectrum of gray it's not really black or white ever well it can be in moments but it, it can very much there. appear to be yeah. black and appear to be white but the truth of the matter is that's just a really dark shade of gray and it's a really light yeah. shade of gray but the reality is is that it's a spectrum of light that goes across the entirety of it from one end to the other and it's literally an infinite thing there's really no yeah. end to it Mm-mm. and to 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 raise somebody believing in this like sort of very static black and white view of the world leaves them bereft of tools that you really need to function you know health in a healthy manner in in the world well, you especially need to pass the world mind yeah and especially the world today where to where change is happening absolutely. so quickly that you've got to be able to in roll our with technological it. world we I have to have I think that's why that. these pathologies are rising to the surface now is because in the past Changes move so slowly because yeah. there wasn't this knowledge, there wasn't this this web of knowledge that encompassed the world that we're all plugged into yep. it all the time. So in the past, things changed so slowly that in the course of one human's life, for most of human experience, has been the change has been pretty much not noticeable at all. Whereas in my forty three years, holy balls, has the change been noticeable? Like, come wow. on, are your balls really holy? They're in absolutely divine and you know this not so much um, <laughs> so Especially anyway after a long hot day that's that's sort of um that's what we want to talk about on this podcast now you've got the background now you kind of get an idea of where we might be headed with this we are going to try to sprinkle in a little more humor as we talk about these other topics because one of the things and i really this is where i would appreciate some feedback from people is I have a tendency because i'm my father's son to let my anger sort of dictate my modality of being yes and and lately i've been very frustrated there have been a lot of frustrating things i've been dealing with you know this letter not the least of which and 
I'm, I'm really searching for my humorous foothold and how to cope with this because I want it to be funny. I want I want to be funny and I want it to be funny and poignant. It doesn't have to be this odious. No, it you it, know it, it, once you get mean, and this is my point. Once you're mean, you turn well, people. Well, even off. there's a way to be mean and funny. It, you know, Louis C.K. and Bill Burr and all these guys and Louis Black and there's a lot of comedians that make a great living. They do. They are mean, but they're funny with it, and it sort of softens. But the meanness yeah, a but little that's what bit. I'm saying. Yeah. They're not. They're not personally meanness, mean. Well, meanness. Just, sure, they are. But they're. But they do it in a way that's more palatable. Yeah. Well, it's it's spiced up. Meanness is like is like bitters. Yeah. Used little, properly, yeah, it can be very bit. very poignant. But it, obviously, too much of it gets in there. It's it's you know it's just bitter. And um, so I am I am really I am honestly struggling to find that that place to deal with this issue in that it's not it's not funny to me as a whole right now and one of the things I'm trying to find is I'm trying to find humor in it as just for myself because it's so insidiously everywhere in everything it's like um if you've ever seen that really crappy movie with Rowdy Roddy Popper called They Live <laughs> Where where everybody everything you? looks normal and everything looks like everything's hunky dory until you put on those special glasses and then all of a sudden you find out how much of the alien there mm. is present in the world and it's one of those things that would would almost drive you insane when you first have the experience it's like holy shit it's everywhere it's all the time it's in everything and so let's. Let's begin to unpack that is what I'm talking about. Like, let's unpack it and let's figure out how we're going to laugh about it because if we don't, we're all going to fucking go insane. I mean, that's just, I'm going to, um, if I don't learn lucky, how to laugh Lucky, lucky me. <laughs> and I'm taking her with me for fucking sure. Help me, please. Thanks for your time and listening. And we really would like some feedback because this is sort of uncharted territory for both of us and sort of going out on a limb, so... It would be awesome to hear what y'all think. And uh, that's our show. Stay tuned. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Eric Pelham. Follow Garrison on Twitter at... Garamone. Garamone. At Garamone. And uh, check out my buddy's podcast, uh, Unbuckling the Bible Belt, and he's on Twitter at Seething Heathen. We'll take you guys next time. Thanks for listening. You've gone completely off the reservation here. We need to keep her on the reservation.